He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the throne of grace and ask God's direction and guidance on our study of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for all that you've done for us, all that you've provided for us. And as we study in this epistle of to the Ephesians, we are reminded at the very beginning that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And in this epistle, we come to understand what some of those are, but certainly not all of them. And in our passage that we've been studying in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we're reminded that the foremost, the foundational blessing is that you have made us alive together with Christ and you have raised us with him and you have seated us with him. And that this is a foundation for understanding who we are as believers in Christ, our new identity in him, which has to do with our purpose in life, which should define everything we do in our waking hours. For we are here not to serve ourselves, not to serve those for whom we might be employed, but to serve you in every area of our life as husbands, fathers, as mothers and wives, as children, as adult children, as employers and employees, and in every other realm of life, we are to serve you and glorify you. And that is done by transforming our thinking from that of the world to that that you have revealed in your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would encourage us to continue to pursue this, that we might be conformed to the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It's wonder, you always wonder how the mind works when you look at the word Ephesians and you say Hebrews. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 where we focus on God. One of the great statements, and we find it twice actually in this chapter, is this but God. Later it is but Christ. But God has done so much for us. That is the emphasis. This is the center of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is the beginning of chapter 2, verse 4, but God and understanding his character. As we read in verses 4 through 6, 
but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. That's about as far as we're going to get this morning. But I want you to notice as we get ready to pursue this that we have the word mercy, we have the word love twice, the noun and the verb, and then we have the word grace. That is the foundation of God's work on our behalf, is understanding this aspect of his character. And the result of this is that he is doing this for us. The us here must be understood, as we've seen recently. This is a word that has uh, a variety of meanings in, in Ephesians. It can refer to unsaved Jews, where Paul is speaking about unsaved Jews at the very, uh, at the very beginning of the epistle. And that becomes clear from various passages such as Ephesians 1.12 and 1.13 where he says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now there are some who will say that the we here refers to the apostles or the we here refer is sort of an uh, epistolary we referring to Paul and the others who are with him and then that the you refers to the Ephesians in the Ephesian church. However, it becomes clear as you read through this that that's not how he's using these terms. Now, there are a number of scholars who would disagree with that. There's even some dispensational scholars like Dr. Honer from Dallas Seminary who has a fantastic commentary on Ephesians, but this is one thing that I and several other, shall we say, more consistent dispensationalists would uh, uh, would state, and that is that the we here is talking about the Jews who at the beginning of the church age trusted in Jesus as Messiah, and then by Acts 10 and 11 when Peter took the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, the centurion in Caesarea by the sea, that at that point Gentiles were brought into the church, And once that happens, then you see the dynamic of this new organization, the church with a capital C, that it is comprised of Jew and Gentile together. That's the thrust of this epistle, is this previously unrevealed truth that the church would be made up of Jew and Gentile together, and the dividing line between them would not be a factor in this church age. That is why in a couple of different places when Paul is talking about the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is the unique marker of the church age, that in Christ we're baptized in him and there is therefore neither Jew nor Greek. Now, of course, Paul was still an ethnic Jew. Titus was still an ethnic Gentile. But that ethnic distinction did not impact their relationship with God or their uh, access to God. In the Old Testament, Jews could go all the way into the Holy of Holies. If you were a high priest or you were uh, a priest, you could go into uh, service in the holy place. 
But Gentiles could not go beyond a certain point. So it impacted their relationship with God. There was a distinction between what God allowed the Jews to do and what he allowed Gentiles to do. He was teaching certain things. But now in this church age, that's not impacted. You're still Jew and you're still Gentile, but there's no that doesn't impact your access to salvation. It doesn't impact your access to uh, the throne of God because we have a high priest now who is at the right hand of the Father. So when those verses talk about there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile or no distinction between uh, slave and free, in the Old Testament, again, there was a distinction between slave and free in terms of your access and how far you could go in the temple service. And then the third characteristic that's that's marked out is there's no uh, distinction between male and female. And that just really gets butchered today because there's so many people who come from a feminist perspective who want to say, see, women can now do everything that men can do. And that's partially true. They have equal access to God the Father, just as uh, Gentiles have equal access with Jews, just as slaves have equal access to those who are free. Women have equal access with, with men to God's presence. This is in the Old Testament. You had, I mean, in the temple, you also had a marker. There's the court of the women. They can't go beyond that. So there were those distinctions. But men and women are equally created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore they have equal value before the sight of God and with each other, and both are necessary and for the proper function of the human race, to value one another. But that does not mean that there aren't role distinctions. I bring this up because it's, this is a big matter of chatter right now because of some things that... Um, have been said recently, and it's misunderstood by so many people, but role distinctions have nothing to do with basic personhood. And everybody, male or female, are equal equally in the image of God. But women are not allowed to be, let's use an analogy, football team. They can't be the quarterback. They can do everything else. But if you listen to the chatter, if you say that a woman can't be the quarterback, they treat it as if they can't do, be, even be on the team. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says there's a number of things that women can do that men can't do, though the transgenders are trying hard to have babies. There, God created different roles for men and women. It's obvious physiologically. But in Christ, we have equal access to God. And the thrust of Ephesians is that that equal access applies to Jew and Gentile. So Paul here in Ephesians 1.12 says that we who first trusted in Christ, that is, we Jews. And then in verse 13, he contrasts that in him you also, that is, you Gentiles also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, we also know that in other passages, for example, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we read, therefore, remember that you, that you, I don't have a slide on this, or it got lost in the clutter, 
Um, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, that's very clear that the you refers to Gentiles, that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, see, that's that other but now that's so important. You have but God in Ephesians 2, 4, and now in verse 13, uh, but now in Christ you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So as we've looked at this chapter, we've seen that it breaks down into three sections. The first three verses describe the problem that everyone has. We are all born physically alive but spiritually dead. This is who we were before we were saved. We were spiritually dead, and we were alienated from the life of God. The solution is given in verses 4 through 9, and that talks about God's love, his mercy, and his grace toward us in providing us a salvation that is free, salvation that it does not entail any form of works or effort, anything that is meritorious on our part, anything that we can look at and say, see, look what I did. Nothing we can add to it. The cross is sufficient. Therefore, we do not add baptism to it. We do not add any form of ritual to it. We do not add any form of morality to it. It is simply faith alone in Christ alone. And then we are told that there is a purpose in verse 10, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, good works have a role. That is, obedience to God has a role. That is the reason we are saved, or a one purpose for which we are saved. So last week, we looked at the key concepts in terms of uh, spiritual death and spiritual life. And we talked about spiritual death, secondly, talking about the fact that how does an unsaved, spiritually dead person hear and understand the gospel? Specifically interacting with the more and more popular Calvinist concept of, this is really more of a high Calvinist concept of total inability, and they have a false view of spiritual death. Spiritual death is not a person who can't do anything, can't hear, can't think, can't uh, exercise any sort of positive desire to just know God. For them, all of that is meritorious. If you look at the heavens that display the glory of God and you say, there must be a creator, I want to know more about him, they would say that was meritorious, that you can't even think that unless God gives you that thought. So human responsibility and volition are completely excluded by that, and it's a false concept of death. They compare it to physical death where a physically dead person uh, can do absolutely nothing. And we saw in John 16, 7 to 11, that it is God the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of unbelief because they have not believed in Christ Jesus. So he does that to the world. That's the same group of people for whom God sent the Savior, for God loved the world in this manner. We'll look at John three sixteen a little later on. And then we saw that part of spiritual death is that we follow the thinking of Satan. 
the Satan is the second phrase that's there that is uh, according to the prince and the power of the air, but that defines the first course, which is the course of the world. The world represents satanic thinking. It is rebellion against God, and we'll look at that in just a minute. So in Ephesians 2.1, we read, And y'all, plural, talking about the Gentiles who are saved, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, that is, in which those that sins, y'all once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience. That is Satan. He is the energizer. Now, he has an army of demons, and those demons are involved in influencing the thinking of people. So that is referred to as demonic influence. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but demonic influence is anything contrary to the Word of God. It has its ultimate source in the kind of thinking exhibited by Lucifer in his rebellion against God, where he exhibited his arrogance, I want to be like the Most High. He exhibited his desire for autonomy to be independent from God and for his antagonism to God, his hatred of God and all things related to God. So that is what comprises the idea of worldliness. Worldliness is not how you dress. It may reflect worldliness, but it, in and of itself, how you dress isn't worldly. How you, uh, whether you go to movies, whether you go watch TV, I remember when I was a kid, uh, or in high school, a friend of mine who had mentored me a lot was, had gone to somewhat legalistic Christian school, and he didn't think Christians should go to movies at all. Then his wife convinced him to go see The Sound of Music, and he thought, well, maybe there might be a few exceptions. <laughs> That's legalism thinking. You know, it can be legalism, but it might not be legalism. Some people may say, you know, there's messages and all of this. I just choose not to do that, but it doesn't make you more or less spiritual. It's when you think that it makes you more or less spiritual that you start getting into legalism. So, but worldliness can be reflected in fashion. It can be reflected in uh, the things produced in media. It can be reflected in the in literature. Uh, it may not be, but we have to. Worldliness is the way of thinking. It's not necessarily certain specific actions. That's what I'm trying to get across. So the course of this world is according to the prince of the power of the air. That's demon influence. That's satanic influence. And every unbeliever is demonically influenced because they are thinking according to the course of the world. It's impossible for them to think biblically. They may have a morality that is similar to the Bible, but because they are spiritually dead, it is according to the course of the spirit uh, who works in the sons of disobedience. That's about as clear as the Scripture can get. And then in verse 3, we saw that Paul applied it to the Jews as well. So really the first verse is the primary statement. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. The other two verses just uh, just define that. Spiritual death then is, we've seen, is in the, in, defined in Ephesians 4.18 being alienated from the life of God. It is not this idea that you can't understand and respond to 
general revelation in God's creation and have a desire to express more. See, Jesus completely contradicts this Calvinistic understanding of spiritual death when he says that a time or an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So, see, the dead can hear. And those who hear will live. And the other aspect I brought out last time is if the unbeliever is as spiritually dead as the Calvinist explains it, that they can't even exercise positive volition, then why does the God of this age, another term for Satan, need to blind the minds of unbelievers? Because if they're already completely dead and blind, how can you make them even more dead and blind? It just doesn't fit with what the Scripture says. So this idea of demon influence, let's just define it and talk about it a minute. It's the effect of the thinking of any person which imitates the thinking of Satan in his fall. So any person who is thinking like Satan in the same categories, that's that's demon influence. It can involve morality. It can involve immorality. It can involve religion. It can involve people who are... Uh, are, think they're Christians and think they're living some kind of Christian life. That's equivalent to the course of this world. That is the world system, which I call cosmic thinking, spelling it with a K, so that it reflects the Greek word cosmos, which is translated uh, the world. It represents arrogance toward God in two areas. First of all, autonomy, independence from God, and secondly, antagonism, a rejection and hostility toward God. And this is at the root of every system of thinking. You can think about religious systems from Islam, Church of Christ scientists. You can think about Buddhism, Hinduism, any kind of animism, spiritism, any kind of religion. It is all hostile to God and antagonistic to God, even though many of these systems, such as uh, Mormonism, have a strict moral code of conduct, it is still demonic, because especially when you think about uh, the source. So all unbelievers are demon-possessed, or excuse me, are demon-influenced. Uh, believers are demon-influenced when they're thinking according to the world, human viewpoint, when they are not thinking according to the Word of God, and walking by the Spirit. The sin nature has a tremendous affinity for the thinking of the world. It is the enemy uh, within us. Now, one example that we have of uh, a cosmic system, cosmic thinking, is we have two kinds of demon influence, actually. There's direct demon influence, where you have some sort of revelation from a spirit, where somebody says, well, God spoke to me, or an angel spoke to me. And the classic examples are Mormonism, where Joseph Smith uh, had a vision of an angel, the angel Moroni, who revealed to him the Book of Mormon. In almost a similar scenario, you have an angel appear to uh, Muhammad and gives him the Book of Mormon. That's direct demon influence. 
Then you have indirect demon influence, and that's all of these human viewpoint, philosophical systems and religions, everything from postmodernism to transgenderism to LGBTQ philosophy to open border philosophies to socialism, Marxism, all of these are human viewpoint uh, systems, mysticism, uh, works-oriented religious systems, all of that is and much, much more comprise what is meant by by demon influence. See, we often think of demon influence as somebody who's specifically bad or has certain specific ideas, but just anybody who's not thinking biblically and has a belief system that isn't, isn't biblical. They all have the characteristic of independence from the God of the Bible and a hostility to the truth of Scripture. So this time we're looking at these at we've reviewed the key concepts from last time and the week before, and in our passage today we see this emphasis on God's love in three categories. First of all, he is rich in mercy. And the idea there is is that God is not parsimonious. He's not stingy in his mercy. He is rich in mercy. It's overabundant. It's sufficient. That means it's more than enough. It covers everything. And he loved us with a great love. How great is God's love? And the word there that, that's translated great has the idea of expansiveness. It, it's, its boundaries are, are infinite. We, we can't measure it. It's, it's immeasurable. And it's difficult for us to even comprehend all that is involved in God's love. Paul says that later on uh, when we get down into uh, the middle of the book. So his, we can't understand the dimensions of his love. And then the third thing that we'll close with is that because of his love, he makes us alive together with Christ, the first of the three verbs that we see in verses uh, 5 and 6. So just to see the overall structure of the passage, you read in verse 1, he made alive. That's brought there simply because it makes more sense in the English, but that that of the first three verbs isn't found until you get down to verse 5, made us alive together. So the first part, first three verses talk about our problem, and then we get to 4 and 5, beginning with but God, where he, Paul, gives us the God's solution to our problem. And it's a perfect solution because God is perfect. His solutions to problems is always perfect. And then it points us to the future. So this is the past, then we have the present, and then it focuses on the future that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the, his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we look at the opening here, and it talks about but God. This is a contrast with verse 1. Verse 1 said we were dead in trespasses and sins, and in contrast, God makes us alive. 
That is the focal point. That is just the, the wonderful thing about Christianity is that we are made alive. M- many people didn't even realize they were dead when they were spiritually dead. Some come to realize that life is pretty miserable for them, but they have no idea what their solution is. But God makes us alive together. Jesus came to give us life. He said, I came uh, not like the thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. We see that word again, uh, various uh, words in the Greek for abundance all emphasize the expansiveness, the richness, the wealth of God's grace that we can't out do the grace of God. He has provided everything for us, and he makes us alive. He gives us real life, not just this fake life that people think they have because of the things that they do and the things that they experience, and they're chasing after happiness and all manner of other things, but it's the word of God that tells us that Christ gives us this real life, and it starts at when we trust in Christ And at that instant, we're made alive together uh, with him. So this is God. And then he's going to define the specific aspects of God that, that are important for this topic. Why does he make us alive together with him? What's going on in God's character that that he wants to make us alive uh, together with him? So we're initially told that God is rich in mercy. And that word translated rich indicates the superlative character of his mercy, its expansiveness. It is, it is not a small thing. It is, it is without boundaries. It's infinite. And this word mercy is the Greek word elias, which has the idea of kindness or concern, expressed for someone in need. Uh, it expresses mercy, compassion, and clemency. That's from the uh, Bauer Art and Gingrich Dictionary. So we can say that it is unmerited kindness. It's something that we don't deserve because we are fallen. Some people emphasize mercy for those who have things happen to them that are not deserved. Uh, that's how it was used in classical Greek. But scripturally, it is God's, an expression of God's love toward us who don't deserve it. We've done nothing whatsoever to deserve it, but God who loves us has provided us this. So mercy is an aspect of the expression of the love of God towards those who are in desperate need. We can do absolutely nothing to make ourselves uh, savable. We can do nothing to make ourselves attractive to God. We are fallen, dead rebels as far as God is concerned. Yet he has chosen in his, in his character to do all that is necessary in order to solve our problem. God always solves our problems better than anything we can do. Now, at the bottom of the panel up there, I have the written the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is an Old Testament concept that is frequently, I think around 200 times, translated with this Greek word in the Septuagint. And chesed is a multifaceted Word. It indicates God's covenant loyalty. 
But a lot of people, when they hear that, that this is talking about a legal concept of covenant loyalty, think, well, that seems kind of stilted and sterile, and it, it doesn't sound quite personal. Well, let me explain why your thinking needs to be adjusted. When you got married, whether you're married now or not, you all understand the concept of getting married and going and standing before a clergyman or maybe a judge. And if you are getting a state-sanctioned marriage, then there is a marriage license. And that marriage license involves a, a contract between the two parties. And when you get married, most people have... Uh, a lot of emotions at that time, and they're very much in love with the person that they are marrying. But when they go through the marriage ceremony itself, whether it has to do with just a civil ceremony or with a Christian ceremony, they are entering into a legal contract. And they are uh, making a provision, an oath, that they will stick to that contract, whether it's for better or for worse, Better usually comes in the first 30 or 40 years of the marriage. That enables you to get through the worst part, which is taking care of each other when you wake up in the morning and don't know who you are, much less who your spouse is. And some of you have had the um, had time to take care of parents, elderly parents, going through many horrible things. And what enables them to stick together? Let me tell you, it's those first 20, 30, 40 years when they raise children together, when they have that together. When people remarry later in life, and um, I've seen this happen several times, they get married and everything goes good for two or three years, and then all of a sudden the other person starts developing serious health problems. They don't have the foundation in the relationship to go through the really hard times. I just recently heard about about one, one couple that had gotten married later in life, and when they they did a couple of years later, he started having all kinds of problems, and she said, okay, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. There's no foundation in that relationship of the 20, 30, 40 years ahead of time. But the point that I'm making is you, you enter into a legal contract. doesn't sound romantic when I say that, does it? You enter into a legal contract that you're going to stick with that other person through thick and thin. And notice it that defines what that love relationship is. There is that romantic element to it, but that's not the foundation of it. The foundation is that you are uh, pledging to honor that relationship, that legal contract. So when we look at God's word, hesed, that has to do foundationally with his honoring his covenant with man, his covenant with Moses. Often that's the foundation of the Old Testament. Translated God's loving kindness, his faithful, loyal love. But that word chesed has to do with loyalty to his contract. He's not going to break it just because Israel was rebellious. He stuck with them. They are still his, still his chosen people. 
So that is, and mercy is one aspect of that. God was, many times in the Old Testament, he was extremely merciful to Israel despite their idolatry, their rebellion, uh, their spiritual adultery, their disobedience, the fact that they committed horrendous sins such as child sacrifice out in the Valley of Kidron, yet God did not uh, walk away from them and lead them. God brought them under discipline. Uh, God took them out of the land, but God never broke his contract with them. That is the picture of love, and he was merciful to them. He did not destroy them because of their disobedience. So the Old Testament gives us that picture of God's mercy. In the New Testament, we have pictures of God's mercy in the way Christ healed Many of the sick cast demons out of those who came, who were demon-possessed, and that he even raised some from the dead, all, of course, to demonstrate that he was God, but they also demonstrated his mercy. But the greatest act of God's mercy is our salvation. Titus 3.5 says, It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. See, Paul stating the same thing in slightly different words. God saves us according to a standard, and that standard is his undeserved merit and kindness, the expression of his grace in what is called mercy. It is according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration. Notice here, just as in our passage in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, the connection of mercy to regeneration, to being born again, to be given new life. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And then in First Peter, First Peter, Peter opens his first epistle by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. See that same connection. According to his abundant mercy, that's the standard, his own character, has begotten us again, regeneration, given new life. And he's begotten us again to a living hope, not a dead hope, not some uncertainty, but hope in the Bible is always a conviction of certainty. It is a confident expectation of what will happen. It's not a wishy-washy sort of expectation that that you have plans for the afternoon and it may or may not rain, but you hope it won't, it won't rain. And then after church, you go out and it's a deluge. So that happens. But that's how we use the word hope. But the Bible uses the word hope as a confident expectation. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that resurrection is a picture as well of new life that we have in him. We have eternal life. So God, who is rich in mercy, and then the next phrase is very interesting, because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, the Greek here, I think, is very, very important. The word we use because indicates causality. That's indicated clearly in the text. The cause of our salvation is God's love. The cause of our salvation is not our faith. 
When we get down to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the same preposition, but the noun following it is in the genitive case, which indicates means, not cause. But when it's, uh, when it's used with a noun in the accusative, it means cause. So the ultimate cause of our salvation is the love of God. The means is through faith. Faith doesn't cause our salvation. Again, that is a little problem, I think, with the way some Calvinists express things because they see faith as meritorious and therefore causative of salvation, but that's not what the grammar says. It is through faith, and as we've seen, the faith that saves is non-meritorious because it's the object of faith that is that is meritorious, and that is Jesus Christ's work on the cross. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, and we have two uses of the word love. The first is agape, it is the noun, and the second is the word, the verb agapao, which means to love. Now, the distinction between agape and the second most common word for love in the scriptures, which is uh, philos as the as the noun and phileo as the verb, is that's a more intimate love. For example, God has agape love for the unbeliever, but he never has phileo love for the unbeliever, never once. He That's reserved for those who are saved, and then he loves those who are saved with a more intimate love. Now, to understand the implications of this word love, I want to look at three passages the first is John 3.16, a verse that's familiar to many of us. It is translated in many versions, and the way you probably memorized it is, is erroneous. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And in that English translation, it often looks as if, and I've heard people paraphrase it this way, for God loved the world so much. But that's not what it says in the Greek. The Greek word translated so is the word hutos, which means thus or that or so or in this manner or in this way. So that the NET translation, which I have on the screen, says it well. For this is the way God loved the world. Or for in this manner God loved the world. For God loved the world this way. He gave his only begotten son. That is the best way to translate this because what John is doing is giving us an example of the extent of God's love, the expansiveness of God's love that he gave his only begotten son to us. And then the condition for salvation is clearly stated as whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's nothing added to that. Now, this word, as it's translated there, whoever believes in him is a present tense in the Greek. And uh, sometimes you will read uh, theologians who will say, see, what that means is you have to continue to believe. 
If you don't continue to believe, then you weren't really saved. In fact, what you'll find among those who are lordship Calvinists is they will draw a distinction between the aorist tense, which they will say just just talks about a point in time that up to a point you believed, but you didn't continue to believe. And that's the difference between an aorist use uh, aorist tense and a present tense. The problem is there are several times in the scriptures in John where the disciples believed in Christ and it's an aorist tense. So it doesn't hold true consistently. It's also an abuse. The way they treat this is an erroneous way of handling both the aorist tense and the present tense. So present tense can just be at talking about you know, something that happens now. When I teach Greek, I say, see, there's a present tense that's right now. There's a present tense that's just sort of characteristic. It's today, tomorrow, the next day. There's a present tense that may last for several weeks or years, and there's a present tense that may last longer longer than that. So just because it's a present, you can't hang these theological conclusions on it. It is simply stating the fact that belief is the condition And anyone who has ever trusted in Christ as Savior is saved eternally because at that instant that they are regenerate, born again, given new life in Christ, even if they completely apostatize later on, it's too late. They're saved if they believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. It doesn't say if you believe and stay faithful, if you believe and never commit certain sins. It just says, if you believe, that's the condition because it's it's a recognition that Christ did the work and it's never me. Lordship salvation brings good works in through the back door instead of the front door. The second verse related to God's love and salvation is Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He exhibited his love through the death of Christ. Romans 5.8 is Paul's version of John 3.16. God's love is demonstrated toward us. It's that agape love, which is non, not conditional. God loved us even when we were rebellious, spiritually dead, and obnoxious to him. In 1 John, which was written some 60 years after John wrote the gospel, he says, In this, the love of God, that is God's love toward us, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Both in the gospel of John as well as in the first epistle, John is talking about life that we get from Christ. And then he says in in verse 10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God had the initiative and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the implication, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the, it's, it's always tied to application, what we are to do. Christ said that we are to love one another because that is the greatest evidence that we are a disciple. Not that we're a believer, but that we are a disciple or a student of the Lord. 
So, verse 5 of Ephesians takes us back to the fact, but God, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this takes us back to verse 1, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. So he repeats that part to tie things together. This is one long sentence from verse 1 to verse 9 in the Greek, so he does things like this so the train of thought isn't lost. Even when we were dead in trespasses, alienated from God, God made us alive together with Christ. He destroys that alienation. That is what is meant by being made alive together with Christ. And so here he's using we to refer to we, Jew and Gentile. We are now together. We've experienced the same new birth. We have experienced the same uh, regeneration, and we are alive together uh, with Christ. And then you have the interjection, by grace you have been saved. This is important because when he uses the word saved for the first time, it's in conjunction with and parallel to and explaining being made alive. So regeneration here is clearly stated as the meaning of being saved. Sometimes saved means to be healed. Sometimes this word is used just for physical deliverance. But here it's clearly talking about regeneration and being made alive together with him. It is a Greek word, uh, compound from different words. Uh, the su at the beginning means together. The zao means uh, alive, and poieo means to be made. So it's simply being made alive together. And every place that it is used, it is talking about God giving life. For example, in a parallel passage in Colossians 2.13, we read, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. So we are alive together with him. This is what happened to you and to me at the instant of our, of our salvation. And that's the first of three things that Paul emphasizes here. It is regeneration. We move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive and having the ability, the capacity to have an intimate relationship with the creator God of the universe and then realizing, learning about and realizing the purpose that God has for us, which is what's explained when we get down to verse verse 10. So all of this emphasizes God's work. God makes us alive together with him. When we believe in Christ, we don't make ourselves regenerate. That's the means. God is the one who does all of the work in regeneration. And we'll come back when I get back from vacation, and we'll get into the next two uh, verbs that are used, being raised together with him and being seated together with him in the heavenlies, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded that there was a time when we were each spiritually dead. We were without Christ. We were without hope. We didn't have eternal life. We didn't understand the meaning and purpose that we had in life as your creatures. But now we have made, been made alive together with Christ. We have a unique role from others 
believers who lived in other dispensations. We have a unique role as church-age believers and a special way in which we glorify you as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that if there's any here this morning or any who are listening online, that if they're unsure or uncertain of their eternal destiny, if they desire eternal life, that there is only one way, and that is to trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sin, and we don't earn or deserve our spiritual life, our regeneration, our salvation. We simply trust in Christ. It's not by works. There's nothing we can do to merit it. The merit is all at the cross. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.